0: You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, for service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. So good to be here, isn't it? Love Sunday mornings, love when we come together and we can praise the Lord. You know, sometimes during the week, um, I love a good drama. I don't like dramas in my own life. Don't want that. And last week, we heard amazing dramas, didn't we, from two young men whose lives have been completely turned around. Um, And lots of ways, you know, I've got no testimony like that. Um, But my testimony is still as secure that Jesus Christ died for me and that as I accept him as Savior and Lord... He's saving me every day. But I do like a good drama, particularly on television. Um, I like drive, dramas at live theater as well. I really do like live theater, but when I go to see a drama in live theater, it's usually something, a story that I know. So much as I love seeing it, um, it's not quite the same as you have a drama on telly and you don't know what's gonna happen next. Um, I love all the twists and turns in a well-written plot when you're never quite sure who done it. Um, Sometimes you're never quite sure what the actual crime was because there seems to be two or three and there's loads of different culprits, but um, it's really, really good to just watch and see all the twists and turns, I love that. And I love being able to say, I never saw that coming. Very rarely am I right with who done it. I try really hard um, to, to guess who it might be and I very seldom get it right, but it doesn't stop me guessing all the way through. Um, but it's actually the best storyline, isn't it? When at the end, wow, it's not who you expected it to be. It's somebody completely different. I have to admit that I really quite like those true life dramas as well. You know, the investigations that go on and you watch um, as something unfolds. Um, David gets a wee bit anxious about some of the things that I record sometimes, you know, the, the well-planned murder or, or whatever, you know, but, but he needn't worry, he needn't worry. So don't worry too much about him, but um, well, he needn't worry too much, unless he's being particularly annoying. And I know you don't think David can be annoying, <laughs> but let me tell you, he can be. all on your side <laughs> I don't know but you know as I look at these two crimes is Ross here this morning and um, I look at these two two crimes and sometimes I don't know how anybody can get away with a crime nowadays you know there's so much that happens with forensics and uh, you know they can tell which field that the crime happened in and the technological advances that there are—oh my goodness—I don't think Ross is going to have a job much longer, um, but if it's if it's anything like it is on that small screen. So anyway, you've not come to hear me talking about dramas. Well, you have actually, because there's a couple of chapters in the Old Test in an Old Testament book, which has all the makings of being that kind of real twist and turn kind of drama. Um, twists and turns, goodies coming out on top, baddies getting their comeuppance, something you wouldn't expect, and a happy ending. I do like a happy ending. I like when the culprit's dealt with and the goodies are rewarded. That's what a good drama has to be. And this story has it all. I'm not going to read it just now because although it's two chapters, um, they're quite long chapters, but you can read it later in Judges 4. And five. It's a story which sparks off quite a lot of controversy among biblical scholars for quite a good number of reasons. So you have a look at it later and see what you think. But the ladies who came to our Bible question time discovered that there's a lot of questions can be asked about this story. And there's a lot of different answers that various theologians come up with. So one of our ladies pointed out that you never hear this character spoken on, or one of the characters in the story. You never hear it in a preach. And I thought, no, that can't be right. Um, But even when I look back at the preaching that I've done over the years, I realize I've never, ever spoken on this character. So I thought, we'll change that today. So Irene, here is Deborah. Uh, I'm making amends today. The intrigue of this plot is that it focuses on two women. On Deborah and Jael, who overshadowed the actual deliverer, who was Barak. And in a nutshell, Deborah initiates the action in the name of the Lord, and Barak's refusal to go into battle, unless she goes with them, leads to a prophetic word that the Lord's going to hand Sisera, the enemy army's commander, he's going to hand him over to a woman and Barak won't get the credit. But the woman turns out not to be Deborah, which you're expecting, but Jael. Oh, the twists and turns of a really good drama. And I want to call this two is better than one, and three are better still. But let me set the scene for you because it's of great significance here. God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. It took a long while, but he did it. He'd done his part. And instead of the the people rejoicing at the victories that God had brought them, they're much more inclined to look at the inhabitants, inhabitants of the land and worship their idols and follow their pagan gods. So they've come out of, the, out of Egypt into the Promised Land, they've seen all that God could do for them, but they decide that they will follow the, the gods that they can see, because there's idols that are little wooden idols, or the little metal idols, and, and all of that is there for them to see. Israel's true God, the one who'd led them all the way, the one who'd provided food and water for them, even in the desert. The one who had ensured that their clothes never wore out, their sandals never wore out. They had given them victory over all their enemies they'd forgotten in favor of wooden idols. The theologian Alistair McGrath sums it up like this. The Israelites forgot their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And as a consequence, God was angry. Can understand that? And he let their enemies oppress them, but he never left them. He never, ever left them, and he raised up judges who could lead the people. When the judge did what was right and good, the people followed, and there was peace in the land. But as soon as that, that, um, as soon as that judge died, the, and a new judge, judge was appointed, suddenly they went back to the old ways, looking at what they could see and taking that as being right, doing their own thing, worshipping those pagan gods. Now, does that remind you of a time in history, maybe much closer to home, when people decide not to ask God, but to do their own thing? I was thinking, you know, what a different place Scotland would be if our government sought God and did what he said to do. How much more just we would be How much more compassionate would Scotland be? It's a question we can leave to be answered at a later date. God had brought his people into the promised land as he promised Joshua their leader and he had followed everything that God said. But when they, they came into that promised land, the Canaanites were not completely banished from the land. There were still pockets of them here and there that God said still had to be dealt with but that never happened. And as those pockets that hadn't been dealt with, as they went on and on and on, they became stronger and stronger. And that's what's happening here. The book of Judges is a catalogue of the ups and downs of the Israelites as they followed their judge leaders. It makes incredible reading. It's a fantastic um, drama but it's also an extremely turbulent time. And at the very end, the very last verse says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did as he saw fit. Says it all, doesn't it? Really sad time for God that he's done everything he promised his children he would do, and yet they were turning their back on him. So at the start of chapter 4, we begin to read about the judge who came after Ehud. Ehud had been a really good judge and there had been peace in the land for 80 years. Queen Elizabeth managed 70, Ehud managed 80. But when he died, true to form, the Israelites went back to their old ways. So God sold them into bondage and he sold them into bondage in the shape of Jabin, who was one of the Canaanite kings. One more thing before we actually get to the plot. Let me introduce you to the characters in order of appearance. First of all, there's Jabin, king of Hazor in Canaan. He's a wicked, wicked king, and he's oppressing Israel really dreadfully. Deborah's next on the scene. Um, She's a prophetess, and she's judging Israel. She's the judge in Israel at this, this time, and she's out and out for God. If God says it, she trusts him completely and does what he says, Next we've got Barak, he's Israel's commander in chief and he's described by many as a reluctant general. I really think that's a bit harsh. You can decide for yourself though as we come into the story. Next we have the most prominent cast member. He's God. He's in it. He's actually in every act but he's not always seen by everyone. How true is that? He doesn't need any introductions from me, you'll see what he does. Then we have another character. He's, a very, he's got a very minor role, and his name is Heber. He's a, Canite, a Kenite, sorry, and it's really important to note at this point that the Canaanites and the Kenites were not enemies. They weren't at war at all. And finally, there's Jael. Now, she's Heber's wife, and she has a very small part, but a very, very significant role in this jammer. in in this drama, sorry, jammer. So now we're all set to go, you've got it all. So fasten your seatbelts, here we go. So act one, I've called it a tragic situation, and enter King Jabin. For 80 years, there's been peace in the land under Ehud, the longest period of rest that's mentioned in the book of Judges. Ehud had been judge a judge who was following God. He followed him all the way. It's really intriguing that as soon as a good judge dies, the people invariably go right back to their old old gods and the the gods of the inhabitants in the land. Warren Weirby explains it like this, and I'd never thought of this before. He says this is a prime example of the difference between religious reformation and spiritual reformation revival because reformation temporarily changes outward conduct while spiritual revival alters inward character. The first doesn't depend on the Holy Spirit changing lives but on what the judge directs the people to do and that's what we see. Ehud removed the idols, he took the heathen gods out of the temples and he commanded the people to worship God, Jehovah, and so they did, they did that. He brought about religious reformation. Good thing to do, but not life-changing for the Israelites. And I know I've told you before, I love history, but this really reminds me about Tudor England. Depending on whether the king or the queen was Catholic or Protestant, the people, the ordinary people had to obey that. They had to follow that. They had practically no say. There, were no, there was no translation of the Bible in English. They couldn't read it even if there had been. They did as they were told to do. A few had conversion experiences, but that could mean their lives were, were being put at risk, depending on whether the monarch was Catholic or Protestant. And even if they were Protestant, it still was a very, very difficult thing for them to do. Gosh, aren't you grateful you live now? I am so grateful that I live in Scotland at this time. Yes, our government gets it wrong, but we still have freedom to follow our God as we want to. We also have, we we live in a country that has that freedom, but there are many Christians around the world who do not have that. Speak to Patricia, speak to to Rosie. Um, We are so blessed in what we have. We just need to make sure it's the same for the next generation and generations to come. So Jabin was a very powerful king. He had elite troops and he was very, very proud of his 900 chariots. He was really, he felt invincible and pretty much he was invincible. And he was very securely in charge in the land of Cairn. Much of that power lay in the hands of his general, his military commander, Caesara. He was a bully and he was a tyrant, and the children of Israel were really suffering under his hand. So true to form, we see God's people cry out to God, but not in repentance. They cry out to God to relieve their suffering. You would think that to ask God for comfort without cleansing was an extremely selfish thing to do. God demands that we repent of our sins. All that All that they're going to do is just get back into that circle again where God's going to answer them and then they're going to go back to their old ways. Nothing changes unless there's a complete change of heart. It's not religious reformation they need, it's spiritual revival. They need to return to God individually, not just collectively, exactly as it is for us today. We need to seek forgiveness when we come close to the living God. And we can't rely on everybody else, or we can't rely that we're in church, so it's fine. They should have been praying, creating me a clean heart O God, renew a right spirit within me as David had done in Psalm 51. We have a full gospel and we can't take bits of it out. He wants us to imitate him, to be like him, to follow his teaching, even when what he says is unpopular. That's why he sent Jesus to show us the way. There's too many Christians and too many churches twisting the word of God to make it more palatable to the world. And we've got to really avoid that we would ever do that because for God, it's all or it's nothing. So let's go on to act two. I've called it a divine revelation. Enter Deborah. I love Deborah. She comes in as the appointed judge. Now I've heard all the quips that anyone can come up with. When God can't find a man, he'll use a woman. And I've got one word to say to that, nonsense, absolute nonsense. God's going to use whoever he wants to use. If you are sitting here thinking, oh, just little me, and I've got nothing much to offer, he's the, you're the very one God's going to come and say, I need you. I want you to do this for me, whatever it is, because God will use whoever he chooses. Now, I love that Lapidoth, Deborah's husband, great name, was not in the least threatened by her. It he gives her space to do what God has called her to do. Now, I know that there's some debate, and all you theologians sitting out there could say that there's some debate about Lapidoth. Was he really, was was that really her husband? Or is it just a word that means she was really zealous? If you want to know more about that, Evelyn Burns is the person to go to, because she's the one that started it at Our Lady's Question Time. But, I did find Evelyn that there was quite a number of other theologians were coming up with that, but everyone I read said, people say this, but we believe it was her husband. But Lapidoth, is he zealous, or is he um, a figment of the imagination? Well, I don't know, but um, he doesn't seem to be threatened by her anyway. So here she is, she's leading, she's hearing from God, she's prophesying, and she's judging the people. None of this is the norm at this point in history, because normally women were only known as, if their name came up, it was only they were the wife of, because the man was the important one. It doesn't stop her being God's first choice, though. She was God's woman. And she said she's a different kind of judge from Ehud, Ehud, because she, she calls herself a mother in Israel. I love that phrase, a mother in Israel. And the people came to her because she was God's and she spoke God into their lives. So God revealed to Deborah his plan for the people. She was to go to Barak and Barak was to bring together Israeli troops and draw Caesar's army into a trap near Mount Tabor because God was going to defeat them, defeat their enemy. And she knew that this was God speaking. And so she went straight away to Barak and she told him. She knew when God wants to glorify himself through his people, he always has a plan to follow. And you know what? That is exactly the same today. That's why it's so important we come together to pray. It's great to pray on our own. Yes, we desperately need that. Never give that up. But God works when we come together. It It was so good on Wednesday night to see so many of you online as we prayed together and we asked God for so many different things. But you know, it was so good that we could say amen to each other's prayers as well. God has plans for Bonus. He has plans for Riverview. And it's so important that we come together and pray. So we meet in person to pray on Wednesday. Make sure you're there because God has a perfect plan for Riverview and he needs every single one of us to fulfill that. He had a perfect plan for his army. He chose the leader. He chose the tribes that were going to take part in the battle. He chose the place where the battle was going to take place and he chose the plan they had to follow. And he guaranteed the victory. Hallelujah. Some of them would be saying it's back to the good old days of Joshua. Now, I'm not one to say let's go back to the good old days because I think God still has the best days in front of us. Acts 3. There's a choice here of titles. A reluctant participant or two are better than one. You judge it now. Enter Barak. Uh, He's not the judge, so he gets his orders from Deborah. So a very frank conversation occurs. Um, the kind of con- conversation, though, that a number of men, when faced with God telling them what they have to do, had with God. What about Moses? Here I am, Lord. Send Aaron. I don't want to go. I can't do it. Or we come in the, next, in the next chapter, chapter six, we'd come to Gideon. How many fleeces do you need to lay before God? Was Barak any worse than them? They eventually did what God asked them to do, and so did Barak. So I'm going to go with the second title. Two is better than one. I'm only going to go if you come too, he says to Deborah. It's such a patriarchal society. Here's the commander of the army saying, I'm only going if you come to, to a woman. The message puts Deborah's response very succinctly. Of course, I'll go with you. But understand, with an attitude like that, there'll be no glory in it for you. God will use a woman's hand to take the care of Caesarea. And that woman's not Deborah. I kind of thought it would be when I read it at first. He would learn the hard way that when God says clearly he's going to do something, it's going to happen just as he says. We can always trust the word of the Lord. He's not changed at all. So when push comes to shove, it was Barak who led the army into, charged the army down into the battle. He believed Deborah had heard from God and he went into the battle. Among the mud and the gore and the blood that would all be there, he did it and God used him to bring that victory. And it's Barak's name that we see in the New Testament chapter that we know as heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. Talks about Barak's faith in doing it, so I don't think it's right to call him a reluctant participant. Act 4 is a, a victorious confrontation. <clears throat> the Lord our God is the leading actor in this scene. Not only has he controlled the enemy army and brought them into his trap, he's also controlled the weather and the storm to defeat Caesar's troops. We don't like the storms when they come in our lives, do we? They're messy and they're horrible. We shy away from them, but as we so often sing, through the storm, he is Lord, he's Lord of all. The storms teach us that we can trust him. The storms show us God at work. And that's the scene here. This is also a scene when we meet Heber, he's a Kenite. They're not at war with anyone. They're great at sitting on the fence. They like to remain neutral. By doing that, they wait to see who's on the winning side so they can throw their hat in the ring with them. So he wasn't an ally of Jabin, but he thought Jabin would likely win the battle. After all, he had 900 chariots. How about that? Heber's part in this drama is extremely small. He was to let Caesar know Barak is bringing an army together at Mount Tabor. And Caesar rose to the challenge. He got there. He got his incredible fighting force there. All of them. Did I say he had 900 chariots? They're all there. He did. And this was the dry season because that's when, got, when, when kings went to war. It's quite funny as you read through the Old Testament, then you, you hear that phrase, it's the time when kings went to war. Caesar knew he was far stronger than the Israelites. He knew knew that he had chariots and horses, 900 of them, and warriors as well, and that would guarantee him victory. How dare these, these Israelites try to rise up against him? But he didn't reckon on the power of Jehovah. So just at the right moment, God sent a fierce rainstorm. It never rained at that time. That's why they went to war at that time. But here we are, a fierce rainstorm that made the Kishon River overflow and the battlefield became a quagmire. The water and the thick mud made it well nigh impossible for those 900 chariots and horses to move at any speed. (coughs) Sorry. And the Israelite soldiers were able to easily uh, overpower the confused soldiers And kill them. Sorry, I need a drink. Sorry, could feel that coming. So Judges 4 tells us every enemy soldier, every single one of them died in that battle. Only their commander ran away and escaped. Well, for a little time. But he was escaping he was running away but he was exhausted from the battle and after running about six miles he came to a tent and my goodness it was Heber's place the one who had told them that the Israelite army was assembling so he must have felt this is a safe place to be so here we enter Jael Heber's wife she offered Caesar a place to rest he thought he was safe No Israelite soldier would ever come into a woman's tent. Haber was on his side. He was okay. He would be fine. I actually think his big mistake was telling Jael to lie lie if anyone came and asked about him. Because that meant Jael knew that the Israelites had won the battle and Jabin's grip was broken. If it had become known that he'd sided with the Canaanites, it would be difficult for them when they were trading. So she needed to get off the fence, and she did it in the most unfeminine manner. When he fell into a deep sleep, Jael pounded a tent peg through his skull. Exactly. What a way to go. How could she do that? Well, we have to remember that this is a Kenite woman, and they were nomadic. And it was the women who put the tents up and then down when they were moving on. She was well used to getting a tent peg through difficult ground. How she could do this to a woman, another human, I have no idea. But you know what? It's a story that jars with our 21st century minds. The Israelites were under terrible bondage because of Jabin and Sisera. And God's will was. that that his people should be delivered. It was war. And Jael is to be praised as the one God used to finally bring peace. And it's a 40-year peace that comes at this time. Which brings us to Act 5, a glorious celebration. And the whole of um, Chapter 5 is given over to this celebration when the Israelites wanted to celebrate special occasions, they often expressed themselves in song. So the writer shifts genre, genre now, and we move from narrative, uh, um, a narrative phase where we're just hearing the story, and now we've gone into jubilant poetry. You can read Deborah and Barak's song um, later, but that's the last we hear, really, of Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Two are better than one, and three are better still. Chapter 5 finishes with a prayer contrasting the enemies of the Lord, who, like Caesarah, go out into darkness, with the people who love God and are seen like the noonday sun. The story is there in Judges because it tells far more than a battle between two armies or a battle even between two nations. It's a conflict between the forces of darkness and light. It's a battle that still rages in the world. It rages in individuals, it rages in nations, and it rages in the whole world today. I saw an advert for a child's t-shirt recently. Some of your mums will not be buying this. Um, It had a picture of a cool dude aged about six. And it said, my mum thinks she's in charge. That's so cute. And that's the picture that came into my mind when I was looking at this fight that goes on inside people in government buildings, in workrooms. rooms. Satan still thinks he can take us all down. I I don't know that he thinks he can win. I think he knows God will ultimately win. But he wants to take everyone he can down with him. There is nothing cute about that. Nothing at all. He can't win because God will win. Our triune, three is better still, is God cannot lose. Folks, we who know him are on the winning side. The battles still rage, but we're on the side that cannot, cannot lose the final war. So there's always a choice for us. We either love God and walk in the light, we're his enemy and we stay in the darkness. There's no middle ground. There's no sitting on the fence like Heber and Jael did. They had to choose a winning side. We have to choose the winning side. So make sure you're on the winning side. God will win the final battle. So as the curtain falls on our drama, Romans 15 and 4 from the message says, even if it was written in scripture long ago, you can be sure it was written for us. Absolutely, that's why we ha- we are- we're so privileged to have our Bible in our language that we can read, because it's written for us. There's so much for us to learn from it. The story of this judge, this army commander, and this Kenite woman speaks volumes to us about trusting and obeying God. God hasn't changed He never will. He is for every single one of us in this room today in the same way as he was for his people back in the book of Judges. We need spiritual revival, not just religious reformation. He's the same God with the same power still speaking to us today. We can trust him, even in the midst of all the troubles of our time. It's most important that we know him If you don't know him this morning, please come and speak to one of the leaders here. We'd be more than happy to to introduce you to God. He's waiting for you to come, and he'll never reject you, not for any reason. And for those of us who do know him, resolve to have faith like Deborah. As soon as God said it, she believed him and did exactly what he told her to do. We can trust him like that and we just have to go with them. So may God bless us all as we journey through 2024 with all its battles, which will undoubtedly come for each one of us. Sorry if that's a shock to you, but we know it'll happen. Something will go wrong for each of us, but God will be in it all. Remember, we are children of light, children of God, and he knows what he's doing. Amen.